You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen Sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Ellie Truesdell, founder and managing partner of New Fair Partners, a venture capital fund centered on the modern eater and evolving American palate. Ellie was global director of local brands and product innovation at Whole Foods Market for nearly a decade and played a pivotal role in driving the growth of the natural and organic food industry, propelling some of today's most iconic consumer brands. Ellie is also the co-founder of Made by Nacho, a premium pet food brand with Chef Bobby Flay and his cat, Nacho, and sits on the boards of Made by Nacho, Foxtrot, Loops Lobster, and Wellness in the Schools. Welcome, Ellie. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yes. um, I am so psyched you're here. You've been, you know... One of those like bright shining lights, I have to say, since like 2018, honestly. And I think you're that way for a lot of people in this industry. And I think that um, we're all really lucky to have you advocating for us and, you know, mentioning us. And I remember I got a call. I'm trying to figure out exactly where I was standing, but I got a call. You were at a conference and like, 2018 or 2019 and you mentioned Haven's Kitchen and my phone like went crazy like everyone was like Ellie Truesdell just mentioned Haven's Kitchen and it's you're just you do that you like shine your love light a lot and it's um it's awesome so thank you oh that's so nice um well I just feel very lucky to have been in you know the role I was in for so long at Whole Foods that allowed me to do that and Ultimately, my success has been so many of the amazing brands like Haven's Kitchen who have done things that were really exciting and innovative in the space. So I, I think I remember that conference too and, and calling you out because um, I was just really excited about what you were building then and, and still. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, um, you've experienced a lot of different perspectives, right? And, and I always talk about sort of the ecosystem, you know, there's the brands, the retailers, the investors, the consumers, all of the different, you know, service providers and distributors. There's, this is such an interesting ecosystem to be a part of. And I feel like for you, you know, you've been on the retailer side, you understand the brand side, and now you're very much on the investor side. Um, so to me, it's like you you have your, you know, your heart is in with the brands and the industry, but you also know very much what's realistic, how things work, you know, the likelihood almost of some of the category dreams that we have, et cetera. And so, you know, high level, I'm kind of asking people who I think 
really can answer this question well, especially right now. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of shifts. We're all kind of coming out of this weird post-COVID thing, you know, CAC, all of it. How would you summarize sort of the state of the state right now? Yeah, it's a wild time. I think wild in probably any industry, but certainly in food. And that, you know, first, I appreciate you calling out, um, hopefully me having a unusual perspective of having the chance to be a retailer for 10 years, um, being a co-founder in a brand and now investing, um, for the last four plus years and, and really having a bit of a different perspective, um, all the while as I think we've been in this moment for, you know, the last 10 to 12 years, um, let's say up until the last 18 months or so of there being hyper growth, incredible amounts of capital flowing into the system and certainly into food for a long time, first consumer food and then food technologies. And I think there's just been there had been such a mentality of grow at all costs. Um, there was also, yes, as you just got at, a more um, attractive and efficient way to acquire customers um, that has very quickly been upsided for all of us trying to do that uh, cost effectively. So a lot has changed. And I, I think food businesses are almost feeling that pain twice over because there, even before um, maybe the COVID privacy changes, global unrest, uh, all that's, that's gone wrong, I think there was also a little souring on traditional food CPG mm -hmm. when, uh, or at least from the investor community and feeling as though it wasn't an attractive category or vertical or sector anymore. Yeah. yeah. And that I, you know, I clearly just don't think, I think that anyone who feels like food is no longer investable is just really lacking imagination and vision mm -hmm. for what's possible. Um, of course, like we, there's a, naturally the industry needs to evolve. Um, founders and teams and operators need to recognize what was exciting and quote unquote disruptive 12, 15 years ago is probably not going to feel nearly as exciting as it is today, but there's still so much that needs to happen in the ecosystem of food. And so I'm, I'm really excited by that. And I think, um, you know, just in terms of some points of optimism, because it is a pretty tough time in mm -hmm. the fundraising environment and in um, operating environment, that I, I think that we should all feel really good about where the consumer has evolved. We've got, um, you know, so much of the thesis of New Fair is built on a younger consumer and we we call this person uh or profile the modern eater and so you know gen z and millennials who not only are more informed than ever in terms of what they put in their bodies they can really sniff out bs and they love food they spend yeah, they love it. Yep. <laughs> amount um on their food and love to engage and interact with brands that not only are serving them a product that they love, but also an experience. Um, yeah. I think you, know, you Haven's Kitchen have showed such um, a good display of what it means to also support your product with 
content with community with engagement with what you were you know you're just uh canvassing the streets with a baster um <laughs> people how to cook their Thanksgiving turkeys like those are real things that um that create I think stickiness and and build your evangelist and so there is there is something if you're a food company that ha- has been building um, maybe a bit more modestly than you were told that you should, or, uh, with a real purpose and mission and recognizing all these dynamics, like there, there is some light at the end of the tunnel. Um, and I think, so I think recognizing that, um, and then I think a couple other things that are just like interesting for this audience are that while there has been so much upheaval and volatility, it has really created a lot of opportunity. I mean, mm-hmm. there are a lot of brands in, and when I talk about brands, primarily it's, it's in the emerging brands, it's sort of younger, um, small company, uh, set. So I, I've just talked with a lot of brands who found that the largest CPGs could not keep product in stock. There were, have been such supply chain issues that, um, the largest companies were, just completely empty on the shelves, which gave yep. emerging brands an opportunity to jump in and say, listen, we can fulfill those orders, put us in, like, let us see how we do. So there's, mm-hmm. there's some opportunity there of like trying to um, be, or using your, your flexibility and how nimble you can be to your advantage. Um, and then I think there's a lot that's happening upstream. And as far as infrastructure, that's pretty interesting. There are, a couple of companies, um, one of these examples is a little bit more public, you know, someone like uh, Perfect Day, which is more of a food tech company, but mm-hmm. they announced a big services model and they recognized they have a technology, but they also learned how to build a consumer brand effectively. And so they realized, oh, you know what? We actually could start making a lot of money because we cracked the code a little bit here. And we know that a lot of these new food tech players don't know the first thing um, right. about how, how to build this business. And they're like, they're using that as new new revenue and a, a new business line, which I think is so interesting. And a couple other marketplaces that we watch closely and know they're starting to recognize some huge opportunities in the market around logistics, fulfillment, um, you know, using their engine and sort of back end as another business line. And yeah. I think that's going to be an opportunity for young brands to, to take advantage. Yeah. I mean, I think all of that, it's, it's great to hear. And, you know, I, I always want to be careful if I ever, seem cavalier when I'm like, but this is an opportunity because I realize that there are some people that are really bumming right now and that it's, you know, more of luck and privilege to be able to sort of like hold on through the rough times, you know, because there are a bunch of companies that, that can't and, and won't. And Yet it does feel like these last 12 years to your first point have been this hyper growth thing hasn't been so great for us either, you know? And I, I guess my, my, what I guess I'm trying to get to is that when we are, when traditional sort of consumer packaged good foods companies that require lots of human labor and sunshine and onions and soil (laughs) and trucks and truck drivers and people to reset shelves. And all of that are in the same kind of, for lack of a better word, like asset class as food tech. 
you know, which makes cell-based dairy or whatever. And we're being kind of evaluated by the same investors and the, the, um, I don't know, even with zero sales, those companies are getting hundred million dollar valuations. Um, and partly it makes sense, you know, they need to build an infrastructure. They need all of that makes sense, but it has felt like it has, in one way brought a lot of attention to this industry, but in another way, it's almost kind of set us up a little bit for um, some big disappointments and some big challenges and hurdles that seem like those are kind of new also. And I guess, you know, since you've been here for so long and you've seen the evolution of the natural foods industry and you've been a part of it, I mean, what would you say has helped and what would you say has hurt? And, you know, how do you are, how do you now sort of separate out this like food tech world from just the traditional product world, which I think to your point will always be innovating, but maybe it needs to come down to earth a little bit. Yeah, I, you know, I think food tech has been really disruptive to the food industry. And when I say disruptive, I don't use that word in the innovation sense. I I say Mm -hmm. it as it's really um, messed things up for Mm -hmm. traditional, as, as you mentioned, consumer brands. Um, And, and it's a shame because I think on the one hand, um, well, it's ironic because what we're experiencing now is a lot of those food tech companies recognizing that they overinvested in the technology or overvalued the technology and completely looked past or overlooked the fact that they were going to still need to build a consumer brand. Mm-hmm. And many of them have not been successful at that piece to it. And it's, it's sort of cratered a lot um, of those businesses. But I, I think even besides that it is, it's, it's a silly comparison. Um, and what I think I found or discovered in my early years of investing and, and joining a fund where we were looking at a lot of food technology investments is that we had a really different perspective than the pure tech and generalist investors that were on the cap table of some of these businesses that sort of were crossover consumer brands and food tech businesses. And, um, part of that was both understanding what it really takes to be on the ground and build relationships with retailers and get distribution. And as you know, better than anyone demoing day in and day out and, Mm -hmm. um, those pieces. And I think there was also just a really different expectation on growth and how quickly you should or could achieve some of the milestones that those investors have been expecting. And that's, uh, that's been the most disruptive or mm-hmm. um, critical comparison that's, that's hurt traditional CPGs to think that, uh, you know, more humble, right? but, you know, perishable, as you said, requires soil, requires um, inputs in food safety and distribution that is entirely different than a SaaS business or um, something that happens entirely digitally. Uh, That was never the right right thing to compare, but it has. I think it's really put a lot of more traditional companies um, on, you know, on their heels. And, And that's been 
unfair. Um, so yeah, I, I think there's, there's a lot that's problematic there. Um, and then I think, but I guess I would also say to some, potentially some businesses or brands who have not evolved, they, you know, they are making more of a traditional product, but have been able to create something for their brand that is larger than just the um, onions and garlic and uh, right. or, or cacao or whatever you want to say that's going into it. So I, I think I think there is like a higher expectation of what a CPG company needs to build today, but yeah. it certainly shouldn't be along the growth trajectory of a SaaS business. Right. And that's that actually leads me to a really good, like, that's a great segue to the next question because, you know, you wrote something in a LinkedIn post a couple of weeks ago you know, consumers today having, you know, higher sort of expectations and demands around climate consciousness, social responsibility, product integrity, digital storytelling, and like real community. Um, And that's hard to do when you are kind of, um, it's very hard to do if you're making a product that is not going to be profitable until somewhere in the 6 million to 10 million range of, you know, annual sales, which I think is for the most part kind of where a lot of food businesses are just because of the margins and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's, um, it's also, you know, harder to do today. I think, well, I don't know. Do you think it's harder to do or do you think it's easier to do? And I guess the next question is, in terms of all those things, have you found more success with brands who've sort of chosen a lane? I'm going to go really hard on product integrity, but maybe not climate consciousness, or I'm going to go really into community, but not, well, I guess you've always got to be in product integrity. But you know, it's hard to do all of those things, especially when you are underfunded and your brand and your product isn't going to pay for all of it. And you're going to need to constantly be sort of like replenishing the boat with, you know, investor money. So I'm going to tell you all the things that are hard and you're going to say, I know. And then you're going to tell me all the ways to make it better. (laughs) All the solutions. (laughs) All the Um, solutions, Ellie. Well, so I think to your first question, it is, I don't, I don't know if it's easier or harder today, but what I do think is harder is that the, the, puck has moved or the bar has been raised in terms of expectations, probably because of some of what we're just talking about in terms of food tech and growth and the glossy stories you read and this impression of food that everybody has. Um, I love talking to people. I I think you had Noah Wunsch on your uh, Mm -hmm. show back and, you know, he's just such a great founder to talk to of putting it out there that like food and bev is one of those food industries that no matter, it doesn't always correlate with how hard you work resulting in that, that (laughs) outcome on the other side. It's like pretty disproportionate Mm -hmm. and, um, and it's just very unpredictable. So my favorite quote of his was there's no founder jail. (laughs) (laughs) I remember sitting here when we were doing the podcast and, you know, none of us like to be like, First of all, we know that we need to continually tell investors like, oh my gosh, this amazing thing happened. This amazing thing happened. Like everyone just likes, you know, LinkedIn, this is amazing. And buyers, amazing story, data, great velocity just continues to go up every second. You know, we get kind of conditioned to be like, I'm going to get zapped by like, you know, 
Pavlovian style if I give someone bad news. And he just, I remember being like, sometimes you have to, and it's okay. There's no founder jail. Like you don't get yeah. sent to, you know, the, the dark room. If you, if you tell someone, you know, something isn't great because especially this early, wrong, doing... it's yeah. not going to go up into the right all the time. That, that's just, it's just a, that's a ridiculous, but to your point, the bar has been raised on expectations. And one of those expectations is that it continues to go up into the right all the time, no matter what else is going on in the economy or holiday or anything. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that it has been really interesting to observe. And I hope that's, you know, something just in terms of now, uh, running new fair and, and being an investor and, you know, putting, dollars into companies, the hope is, and you're going to get an empathetic uh, investor on your cap table who recognizes that doesn't always happen. And particularly in food, it's, there will be such major ups and downs, but then the hope is like you are investing in a person that is highly resilient, has the grit and the ability to work through all that. Cause yeah, it is never, never an easy road and certainly never always up into the right. Um, And then I think to the second part of your question it is. It's always hard. You can sort of list off any number of here are all the things you can do as a young brand to win. Mm-hmm. And you know, here are examples of from our portfolio of how they're they're doing it. A lot of it ends up coming down to the brand, the founder, the team doing something really special and that is very specific to them. Um, like things you can't make up or manufacture or just follow follow the playbook. Maybe there are a couple things, you know, on the on the playbook side, I think recently with CAC going up and the landscape we're in, um, spend is now more efficient on TikTok, you know, generating uh, fun, quirky, authentic, not high production value content is is luckily really winning, you know, like the yeah. higher... Uh, more you you spend on content, probably the the lower it will perform. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's something that's great. Keep it up. Um, and but of course that takes time and energy. I don't want to say that like you know constantly it's still putting spending, out right, yeah, content. Yeah, you're you're spending somewhere. Um, but but we're watching TikTok become more and more relevant and an actual conversion um, platform. So that's exciting. I think um, you know utilizing brand ambassadors or what we would sort of call micro micro influencers who just really love your product. And you're, that's all you're doing. You're not paying them. You're, you're just sending them product. You, they're the first people who get your new launches. They feel really endeared to the brand. They're your evangelists. most loyal. Um, One thing I actually want to throw in here, sorry to interrupt you again, but one thing I do want to share with the listeners, because I, we do this and, you know, I would just very highly recommend it. We have like a quarterly cooking class or demo or just town hall with me and our entire email list. Whoever wants to join, we, you know, of course those are, you know, you're, you're the people that are opening and clicking through every single email are basically your micro micro influencers. Cause it's not a separate list. We do have like our, our people that are out there you know, doing UGC and, but these are even more of our people. Um, Mm -hmm. and I'm just there for the time 
And sometimes there are 20 people. Sometimes there are 80 people. It, it doesn't really matter. There's like a, there's a, it's literally free. It's <laughs> my time and maybe someone holding a camera, you know, um, but it goes a really, really long way. And it's something that I know not everyone does. And I'm just putting it out there that like for every founder or marketing person listening, it is a beautiful way to stay connected and almost there's zero reason not to do it. So yeah. that's just, I just wanted to throw in my two cents and you can continue. Holly. I absolutely love that. I think that's a perfect example. And one thing that I always think of is when I hear the velocities and the numbers that primarily conventional retailers throw out there that they might want to see, it, it, this relates a little bit back to your point of, um, they're going to, in many categories, it's like a one to 1.5 per unit per store per week that they want to see, which to me, because Whole Foods and um, Natural Channel yeah. is often higher than that. Mm -hmm. That's not a huge number. I'm, right. And I'm also not saying it's easy to achieve. But what I am saying is if you have your evangelist or your, I, I actually thought this the other day when I um, bought, I, we, we bought or ordered like 12 actual veggie burgers from Wegmans, um, mm -hmm. which it happens portfolio company, but a brand I love, I eat all the time. And in my mind, I'm like, this is so funny. I mean, I just hit you their quota velocity. Yeah. <laughs> on Wegmans, like, and we will continue to do that. I am a huge fan. I eat them so often. And I, I guess that just means that like, if you can really continue to cultivate and connect with those evangelists, just as you said, with you doing that once a month, that's how you build those velocities. They're not massive point. numbers. Yeah. So, um, and by the yeah, way, they're I, not going to tell you that everyone listening, like <laughs> the, your conventional buyer is definitely going to be like, we need at least two units or three units or, right. or give you a higher number, but, yeah. but you'll stay in there. And, um, but I think that's just like a, you know, hopefully a helpful, like, no, it's great. Beacon of light of totally. get, get those people. And, and you hear that in every brand, you hear that for, um, some of the biggest brands on the, on the planet that, that you just have such loyalists, um, mm -hmm. over such a lifetime that that's what drives your company. So yeah. I think keeping that in mind. Um, and then, you know, I think the hard thing right now in terms of what is working for emerging brands and not is how many third parties have also managed to emerge mm -hmm. in the last 10 to 12 years. Like mm -hmm. it feels like an entire third party industry has been built on, um, probably all consumer brands, but certainly in food. And uh, what I am just suggesting to every uh, team and founder is to look really long and hard at every single one of those third parties you're working with, analyze, yeah. calculate if they're actually giving you a return. And even if they are, so cut the ones that aren't, but even if they are, renegotiate those immediately. Like mm -hmm. th these third parties have seen such fall off in the last six to 12 months that, and this is not, I, I don't want to punish those uh, companies, but I also think right. in many ways, their models are not set. They're ready to keep you on. And in many cases, they're willing to renegotiate them for a performance plan. So that's just a great way to or, you know, save money and be more efficient. Yeah, no, I think that's amazing because these are, you know, I, I knew, cause what I love about you so much is like, everyone's like, cut your budget by 15 to 20% just to like brace yourself against what's happening in the economy and fundraising might take longer and yada, yada, yada. And you're like, here's how you do that. You go to every single service provider and you put them on a performance plan. <laughs> and yeah. I mean, at that, see, 
that's what I mean. Okay, we're going to take a little break and then we're going to come back and talk about everything else that you can help us all with. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. I'm back with Ellie Truesdell, founder and managing partner of New Fair Partners. Okay, so I want to go back a little bit and talk about Whole Foods. You know, talk about being on the side of the retailer. You were a champion of, you know, brands that you saw, of, you know, of trends that you had your finger on the pulse of. Like, you were just part of this big you know, uh, I don't know, movement at Whole Foods to bring in new and emerging brands and innovation and types of food. And I guess I'm more interested in the stuff that you thought would be a hit that wasn't, or the stuff that you thought would work, but that they were resistant to. Like, I'm kind of interested in the, the what you took away like from the not working stuff if that's a fair question yeah it it definitely is and there were so many lessons learned over those years um i was at whole foods for a little under 10 years and um you know in my role first in the northeast overseeing local and then ended up at the global office overseeing local and innovation Um, I think what was so interesting is there was this perception that the Whole Foods customers, highly sophisticated, wanted the most unique sort of esoteric high trend, Mm -hmm. uh, food out there wasn't, you know, wasn't price sensitive. All of that really is just not true. Um, Mm -hmm. there's a psychology when you walk into any grocery store, obviously Whole Foods being a, a premium higher tier, but still, you are not willing to spend over a certain amount. I think one thing, you know, it's a little anecdotal, but cookbooks, you couldn't move them for mm-hmm. the life of you, like aprons, anything that's above, even I was always given the gift basket program every year for holiday. <laughs> like that was my little pet project. A lot of special projects would land with me because I touched every category. And so mm-hmm. we, the first year I did it, it was a disaster because we priced most of the gift baskets above $50. And we learned mm. pretty quickly that, really anything over 20 uh, during the holidays at Whole Foods just was, we were pricing ourselves out. So there was, there is psychology that I learned pretty quickly. And um, in terms of 
what we were bringing in products mixed wise, I had to learn this quickly that the most um, unique and interesting, you know, for instance, brought in um, EXO cricket protein bars. Mm-hmm. I think the Brooklyn store. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, my absolute favorite founders. Um, and we, I, I think we learned pretty quickly that there just was an ick factor that people weren't going to get over um, yes. with with cricket protein. Okay. So mm-hmm. that was something. Um, but also just other examples of we would bring in these beautiful Mediterranean flatbreads or things that, you know, we thought were the most incredible uh, products and flavors and pushing the envelope in terms of culinary. And people just didn't want them every day at home. People go to mm-hmm. restaurants for that, you know. So that was, I think, a really big takeaway. Um, and then I learned a ton about people. I mean, uh, that was the other hopeful evolution of me personally, um, and being more successful in my role is that it, it wasn't just the product. Um, when I started, I think I was going after again, like these really unique and amazing products ex- exclusively. I wasn't digging in a ton to the team or the mm-hmm. founders or the entrepreneurs. And so quickly, a lot of the founders that we launched at the Brooklyn store, for instance, were, who were largely Brooklyn founders, mm-hmm. they didn't really want to do mm-hmm. the work or, or cared yep. to uh, deal with the admin headache, which you know very well, mm-hmm. of um, launching with a national retailer. Like that just, they yep. weren't, weren't up for it. And as soon as I wasn't there to hold their hand to do that, it became a real problem. So I evolved a lot in my job and in my role to say, you know what, I'm actually looking for companies and brands who want to be here, who can handle the headache that comes along with growing with a national retailer who can handle the expense. Um, and that just set everyone up for much more uh, success as well as the other thing I always joke about is that a big part of my job and how I became more successful at it was to sort of lead the category managers and the buyers in that category to believe that they had found it. Um, Mm -hmm. because As soon as a buyer feels like I was telling them to bring something in, mm-hmm. much like when, when people all the time now Even. go to senior leaders and yeah. say, hey, I know the CEO at, at Wegmans, we're going to get you in so quickly that that falls apart because yeah. you want the buyer to be bought in from the beginning. So that was, um, I think that's a huge takeaway for any uh, brand listening to this podcast is just mm-hmm. you want to build that relationship. You don't want it coming from someone who is more senior telling them uh, that they should bring you in unless it's a very nuanced situation because, um, that relationship ends up becoming so much more valuable with the merchant connected and, and, close to the product from the beginning. Yeah. It's so funny. Cause I, you know, I was thinking about it today and I was thinking about, you know, the cooking school, and how those diehard people were the first people to buy our sauces at Whole Foods and off of Fresh Direct. And then I was thinking about, you know, those people and then the next people. And then as we launch into new categories, it's going to start with the people, you know, it's, this really is a brick by brick business. And you, that means that it is, it is long and it is a slog um, and it's expensive and yeah, I think there are, it's not there. The, I think part of going back to what we were talking about before the break is that it can look in terms of like media and LinkedIn and, and social, it can look 
like, you know, you know, I, I don't know. I like had this idea. And then the next day I, you know, I was a $20 million company, you know, it, like it can yeah. look very like, you know, quick win <laughs> yeah. and, and like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. But, and sometimes that happens. We've seen that happen and it's kind of amazing when it happens, but for the most part, it's just, it is, it's, it's, you know, I don't know. I keep using the word slog and I don't mean it to sound negative, but not everyone wants to do that. You have to be someone who, if for something's driving you so much or that you, you love it and have such a passion for it that you do, you can get through the slog without it feeling like such a slog that you can't do it anymore. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I think going back to your point about the, you know, the, no matter what grocery store it is, unless it's Italy, which I think is in a league of its own, but you know, the grocery store shopper, whether they're at, you know, you know, Publix or whatever, or Whole Foods, they're, they're there to buy everyday items that they're going to be cooking with and they're, they're going to be keeping in their kitchen. And that's what they go in with the mindset to get. And I think that's yep. really, really helpful because there are people who think that they're, and I've said this a lot on this podcast, cookie or pretzel or granola is so special that it can be, you know, three times the price of the next best thing. Um, and I think they're really disappointed when that's not the case. And I think also, yeah. you know, for me, it helps because on the brand side, like we had one of those fast delivery companies that I don't think, I don't know where they are now, but they, you know, they came to us. They really wanted us on the platform. And my first question to them was, what are the top two items? Like, what are people going to you to get? Yep. And it was, I mean, plan B and Ben and Jerry's banana swirl ice cream. So well, yeah. I was basically like, I don't think they're going to want chimichurri. Like something just tells me <laughs> that they're not looking for like a quick meal solution right now. Yeah. And, and I think it's just good for us to know too, like what is the target buyer going in there or the target guest, as they call it, going in there to get, does your thing fit in with what they're going in there to get? Because chances are all of these, they, these things are set for people and you're already trying to introduce something new to a new group of people doing that in a place that's fundamentally not that hospitable because that's not why people are there in the first place. You know, it's like when you go to a department store and I don't know, there's like a chocolate bar there. It almost feels weird, yeah. you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. I think that often you're doing yourself a disservice to launch on some of those platforms or in, um, in places that you're catching people off guard. It just, it's, right. yeah, you're not, uh, you're not being as, as efficient. And again, it comes down to your time. Like, can you mm -hmm. actually support that, that channel well, or are you just sort of throw, throwing it up and seeing how, how it goes? And I think always right. better to just go after your customer. Okay. Next phase of your career, um, VC. So, you know, was it, was it, um, disconcerting? Was it surprising? Were you like, oh, this is why there are things that are great brands and great businesses, but not good investments? Like what, what was the learning sort of 
in that phase of your career that sort of shaped you to where you are now? Yeah, I think a couple things. One, I I had been told by so many people when I was leaving Whole Foods or encouraged uh, or told, uh, you should really raise a fund. And at the time, I was so naive to both what I'd built and, and sort of the knowledge I'd, I'd built and the value I'd created over those years that I uh, thought everyone who said that was crazy. Um, and they were at the time. I wouldn't have known the first thing. But on the other hand, what I did quickly recognize in joining um, a venture fund was how transferable my knowledge base and skill set was to supporting a portfolio in a really meaningful way. And that I loved. Uh, it felt really good to be able to sort of take take what I'd learned um, and apply to that to a bunch of different businesses. Um, but I think what was either disconcerting or a really important reminder are each fund has really or should have really specific criteria in terms of what they're looking for. And so, you know, I think a lot of founders can feel really um, depressed or, or just disheartened by them not lining up with a certain fund or mm-hmm. getting rejected by however many investors. And that is disheartening. But on, on the other hand, there may just be this sense of that, uh, that fund has a specific profile, check size, mandate, category, you know, stage. Like there are, there are the most disciplined investors have such criteria um, yeah. in terms of what they're investing in that you really do have to find that sweet spot. I even feel that now in terms of, you know, we've raised two thirds of our fund at New Fair and going through that process with investors, it's like very mm-hmm. trying, have had many rejections, but the people who are investing have a real motivation and a reason to, you're not just like, people aren't investing in you out of the goodness of their heart. Right. right. Um, and so I think keeping that in mind, um, as a company, as a brand is you need to, uh, find an investor base that has already built a thesis around where you live, you know, right. they're, they're going after that particular part of the market. They believe this to be where, food is going or, or where consumers are going. Um, and so make sure you're aligned in in order to not hopefully waste your time. Um, and then I think some of the other things I learned are there's, there is a real mob mentality. Uh, I think if a group of investors is excited about something, they immediately all go, you know, Mm -hmm. and there are some little uh, antiquated and unfortunate, um, you know, dynamics that go along with that of sort of the, in some cases, the boys club, but also just a group of people who they share deal flow. They look at things mm-hmm. together. They get excited about the same things and it, and it becomes a little bit of group think. Yeah. Um, I do think that that given the market and the environment now has been slightly shattered or is not as uh, strong as it was when things were on such a high but, um, but there's really something to that. It's hard if you're not in those worlds and, yeah. um, that cannot be overlooked and, and hopefully more and more people start to enter the system that, that can sort of shake that. Um, and I think, you know, it's just been, it's been really instructive in terms of where food has gone and what's considered exciting. I, I didn't mention this earlier, but I think a lot of investors, that were really excited about food 10 years ago have completely abandoned it. Mm -hmm. And that for me is just a, you know, 
um, culling. I think, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's culling and it, um, but it also says something about the way that group of people invests, which is at a, in a very different, from a very mm-hmm. different perspective. And of course me, I am a specialist. I'll only ever stay in food and for reasons of adding operational value versus, um, they're just being themes and verticals and sectors that investors can mm-hmm. jump to. And, and frankly, like the other thing is I, I think there are brilliant people who can do that really well, not really knowing deeply any one industry, but just understanding business models mm-hmm. and macro trends and where, um, you know, consumers or maybe where America is heading and, and demographic shifts. But then I think there's a real, like my, a big part of, of new fair and our approach and strategy is built on this feeling that operators are more and more desirable. Um, founders that are, are building competitive brands want to take money from people who can truly add value, yes. especially. In early stage yep. So yeah. So it, it puts hopefully us and other investors like us in a better position to get into those, those deals and execute. So yeah, have learned a ton. <laughs> and I mean, going back to something you said earlier, because I mean, I think I've talked about it on this podcast, but I don't know, I was raising money at some point and, you know, everyone, all my founder friends gave me all this advice. They're like, you know, you make an Excel spreadsheet and you look at what they've done in the past. And if they haven't done a very early check, you know, in a very small amount in your category, you are not going to be the one to change that. So, you know, maybe take the call, but don't get too invested and make it quick and maybe don't send a whole deck, but just do a thing. And, you know, there's all these like ways to protect yourself. And I have a lot of friends that gave me a lot of tools to protect myself. And yet... I found myself in bed for three days. I mean, I remember it really vividly. And I remember having a call with a friend and just being like, I don't think I can get out of bed. And because it's just, I mean, it makes me emotional to even think about it. Like it is just, you just get pounded with rejection. And I think what makes it worse is that if they had just said, you know, thank you so much. I hear great things. This isn't our, you know, stage. We don't write checks this small. We don't do anything that doesn't have national distribution, but we really appreciate it. And like, you're on our radar. That would have not been a rejection to me. That would have been very much appreciated. But I still, even now, like, you know, doing safe notes, doing little things, like I'll still say like, hey, this doesn't look like it's your thing. And they'll be like, no, 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 no. Like we'll take the call. And then this this thing in the back of my head is like, well, maybe I, maybe I will be their first ever, you know, note, you know, (laughs) investment. And then, and then of course, you know, you get the email that's like, it's not you, you're great. And we love it. But you know, why, why do they do that? Can you answer why do they do that? Is it just because there's a CRM and they need to have a check mark or it would save uh, I, so many I people hate, so much, so much sadness. It's, you know, yeah. I hate to be cynical, but my, in, in answering that question potentially is many, many 
funds is, I think you're getting at this track, how many deals they look at, how many, you know, founders they speak to. And then it shows such uh, discipline that they've only invested in, mm. you know, the 0.05% of companies they've spoken to that year. Like I, I see that often of, we speak to over, I mean, and I always think this is crazy, 3000 businesses a year and we invest in 10, whatever it ends up being. So yeah. there maybe is there the margins of investments, cool. right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and then there is, there also is an element of like people just operating uh, a little bit like machines or not recognizing that it would be helpful to get a little bit more color as to why you're not investing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and definitely to what you just said of, let me know if, I, I think there may be on to defend uh, maybe an investor who has done that, there may be an element of like, oh, are they just going to think this is trite and I'm trying to give them some lame excuse if I say timing is off or mm-hmm. any number of things. But I do think it's it's helpful and valuable. And then it opens the door for the future if you actually are uh, interested, right? Like if, yeah. if there's another time where this could meet your check size and stage and once you've hit this hurdle. And I think that's hopefully a best practice is saying, yeah, we we don't talk to brands that um, don't have national distribution plus uh, a couple of these criteria. When you hit this threshold, let me know. Like we should mm-hmm. talk again. And then it also feels like it was worth your time. Um, yep. But it is. It, it it's a tough environment. Yeah. And the one thing I was thinking about, as you just mentioned or shared your story of what sounded like a very sad few days, is. Yeah. Um, it is sometimes hard when you get advice from people as to how you should go about fundraising. Um, mm-hmm. I was definitely given some advice in early days of New Fair of just go out there, like take <laughs> take no prisoners, uh, yeah. don't you know, don't do anything uh, that you don't need to do, and you tell them what the terms are. And like literally, I did that probably with one person because it's so not me, right, and it right. completely blew up in my face. Like I was overly <laughs> aggressive, which is not yeah. my style. I'm sure it put off the person and it right. didn't go anywhere. So um, I think, I think just trying, it, it is so hard raising money and, um, but trying to sort of do it in your own way, you never know how it, it can go rather than taking <laughs> advice that's yeah. worked for other people. There's a really good, I, I listened to an Adam Grant um, podcast and he interviewed a founder of something who, um, this is very weird segue, but it's worth looking and I'll see if anyone DMs me after I post this, I'll try to find it. But basically there was a founder of like a couples therapy um, app. And I guess the research around couples therapy very, very briefly is that you actually don't need as much of it as regular therapy, that most couples actually report a lot of improvement in their relationships after, you know, three to five sessions. It's also not as personal. There's more themes. It's not as like, you know, deep kind of. So this was like a quick and dirty couples therapy app. Um, Hmm. And they were asking Adam Grant to be an advisor. And the founder apparently is fantastic and really well credentialed and doing a great job. And she was just looking for an advisory board. And she sent him an email and a deck. And he found it to be very off-putting. And he invited her to come on to the podcast to talk through it. 
because he was like, he knew enough to know that, that she's not off putting and that it's a good yeah. idea and that, the, you know what I mean? But he found right. the tone and he found the, you know, best team in the world or whatever it said, like, yeah. And, and, and it was really interesting. And she said something, and this is why I'm telling the story. She said, I was trying to be more positive and more assertive because I've been told that I'm not positive and assertive enough. And I just remember being like, Hmm, me too. And my guess yeah. is a lot of women are, you know, we're like, listen, I think the reset is going to be in April. You know, that's what they say. <laughs> like it could be, could be in May. I, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty confident. I mean, we know that we're in the set. I can't, yeah. you know, and it's in the budget, but you know, and I think a lot of people, maybe not women would be like, we're crushing it and it's happening yeah. in April and they want 85 of our things and like, they love us. And, you know, and, but when we try to be more that way, or like in your case, we try to put these, like, I'm going to guard my boundaries and I'm going to be more, you know, this is what I need. Um, yeah. It comes off sounding like oddly inauthentic and yeah. a little off-putting to you. And I don't know what to do with that, but I, I see it more and more with female founders, especially. Yeah, I think absolutely. And I think there's something to that of maybe there's nothing wrong with being a, a little more modest of being exactly who you are and trying to get down to the detail. Or I hope that that eventually is rewarded. Um, but it, it is unfortunate that then there's the critique around being that way, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, no, I think it's a, I think it's a tough one. Yeah. Well, we're not going to solve, um, the gender gap right now, but, uh, <laughs> we can talk about the next sort of phase of your career, which is being on the co-founder, right? Being an actual in-brand operator, seeing everything, and you co-founded it with a cat, which must have made it really, really hard. <laughs> <A lot of> people. <laughs> I mean, that's tough, you know, co-founders are rough, yeah. but when it's a nonverbal, you know, feline, <laughs> that's even harder. No, but, you know, obviously Same I'm type. joking, but so what, you know, obviously you knew a lot about brand, you knew a lot about operations already, you knew about, I mean, I think most people understand the actual brass tacks of building this thing is, is borderline impossible, crazy. But did you learn more than that on the founder side? I really, really have. Um, <laughs> so yes, I was, I was lucky to co-found the pet brand made by Nacho with both Nacho Flay and his dad, Bobby Flay, who... <laughs> most of you will know as a famous, uh, chef and, and TV star. Um, I worked with a lot of chefs over my years at Whole Foods and helped them launch their consumer brands. So had met Bobby along the way. And he sort of always said, if I ever do anything CPG in CPG, you're going to be my first phone call. And so he calls me. And of course I think it's going to be about a barbecue sauce mm -hmm. or a rub or something lame and uh, that I wouldn't get excited about. And he says, you know, I actually want to do something with Nacho and Nacho, his cat, uh, one of two, he also has a cat named Stella. 
Is, is she going to get yeah. a brand too? Because she she should get a brand. Everyone also. worries about Stella. She will, I think, one day. We okay. hope. But she's um she's pretty skittish. She doesn't like <laughs> she doesn't, she doesn't love like to be on camera, one. right? Okay. She's, yeah, she <laughs> loves to just support her older brother, uh, <laughs> his business exploits. Um, but so so Bobby, you know, he's really savvy and and just has a good sense of humor and was like. You know, at this point, Nacho has over 250,000 followers on Instagram. He's his own celebrity um, in his own right. Bobby's getting licensing and endorsement deals thrown at him specifically for Nacho, not for Bobby, Mm -hmm. but for Mm -hmm. him. And he also is sort of recognizing he's been a cat lover his whole life, uh, that he he didn't feel that good or comfortable with the food that he was um, feeding him. And sort of is watching all of these dog companies launch and quote unquote better for Mm -hmm. you or just higher integrity, um, stronger brand products in the last 10 years. And he just felt like there hadn't been much in cat and had done enough research to know what cats need, which is ultimately they are highly carnivorous. They are obligate carnivores. They need meat first. They really need hydration and right. the big the big key challenge to cats is that they suffer from palate fatigue and are um you know a uh, lot of people would say picky but more than anything they need diversity they need breath and they need things that are going to excite their palate which what was so fun for me in that whole equation is all right you've got Nacho Flay, who has ultimately 250,000, what we expect to be customers built in following him already. Mm-hmm. And then who does he have for a dad, but one of the most famous chefs in America who mm-hmm. hopefully is going to formulate products that are palatable, but with ingredients that we can stand behind and, and that there's really opportunity to build a brand here because so few people do cat. Yeah. Um, and so Great. it really felt on the one hand, I, I will admit, and you will appreciate this, that when I'm first thinking about this, which is about four years ago, in my mind, I'm sort of like, uh, I don't know, cat feels right. really off brand to me. Yeah. <laughs> like, I've sort of exclusively been in this world of natural organic food. and right. But what attracted me to it beyond all the things I just mentioned are there's a real need for pet at large to yeah. follow sort of human food trends around supply chain integrity and um, sustainability and whatnot, mm-hmm. uh, but more than anything, cat. There, there's been so little uh, room for that and so um, so much rigidity, I think, across the, I've learned this now, across co-packers to do anything right. that's unique. And so it's been really, really fun. There's a lot, we've, we've built in a lot in terms of what we both know in terms of our human food um, backgrounds and, and like in terms of our supply chain, like we're doing a lot with the offtake from really incredible seafood suppliers and Mm -hmm. uh, poultry suppliers that is otherwise getting wasted. And we can use that in our product in a way that's really good for cats. Um, you know, there's a a lot of offtake and, uh, and even like literally whole fish that are otherwise being discarded because of their not meeting them that we can use, um, in whole. So it's been a really fun, interesting ride, but to your question of being, yeah. Um, I, the other thing that drew me to sort of the challenge of, of co-founding this was I had not had the chance to build or be really close to a, a digital first brand or mm, a brand that mm-hmm. was go. And I just recognized, you know, this is now four years ago, how important that was for yeah. sort of my career, my ability to engage with, with 
emerging food brands. So um, that has been an Im- immense learning and so worthwhile um, yeah. part of the journey. And I think it now keeps me really on the ground in terms of all of what we're talking about now. Like, you know, some of the tactics that I'm sharing here are totally things that we're doing at Made by Nacho. Um, mm-hmm. but I think it has has really, really informed my interaction with teams and founders and uh, and hopefully made me a better investor because we understand how quickly things are changing. And we're, we're throwing things at the wall and seeing what works, seeing what doesn't and, and trying to share that with our community, our portfolio, everyone. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like you're, it's great. I mean, all of it, right? Because all of these different pieces of the puzzle are what goes into, you know, whenever I interview people like last or two weeks ago, I interviewed Eric Skay from Carbone, you know, and we went through like, what makes a great brand? What makes a great business? Like that's what people are asking. And, you know, I always talk about like the architecture of a house. You can choose a yellow couch, a blue couch, curtains, blinds, wood floors, carpet, all of that doesn't matter. There needs to be like foundation that is pretty much the same for every house. And then every single, uh, you know, house and apartment is built differently. There's no right couch, but there are some fundamental rules of physics that, Mm. you know, you kind of need to know. And what you're bringing to, you know, the companies that you work with and people like me who you don't work with yet, hopefully, are, you know, (laughs) are just, you know, really, you know, boots on the ground, helpful, you know, thoughtful uh, tools for, you know, navigating through all this, you know, so I... I really appreciate it. I think the whole industry really appreciates you. And, um, you know, I've been so happy to be your friend and thank you so much for coming on the show. Really. It's been awesome. Thank you so much. No, that is such a a nice summary and, um, I really, really appreciate it. And I love this show. I think you're doing so much for the industry here. Um, just allowing everyone to sort of share their trials and tribulations. Um, And this has been so fun. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Ellie. Armin, thank you. Thank you. Another great week. This is episode 180. Um, So that's kind of crazy. And um, I couldn't, Ellie and I were talking about beforehand, I could not do this without you, Armin. So very much appreciate it. And also really appreciate the fact that people are listening. I would probably honestly do it anyway, just because like I get to talk to really smart people and ask all my questions, but it's also really cool that you are listening and that it's helping. Um, And I appreciate all the messages and the positive response. And um, I will be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.